Well, I'm sure you've heard about the snake handlers of Appalachia. Uh, this is a denomination that started from the, the Church of God um, by a man by the name of George Went Hensley. He started this denomination in the 1920s. There are now 40 of these churches in the United States and four in Canada. And what makes them unique is that they, as part of their worship service, on occasion, will deliberately handle venomous snakes, um, rattlesnakes and that type of thing, and, and they, they pass them around, they have people come up, and you, you kind of reach into a bucket and pull it out, and this shows your great faith in God and God's Word that if the snake bites you, uh, you won't die. Now, I've never actually been to one of these. I've, I've tried to research them a lot online. Um, but I, I do think you could tell instantly if you were in one of them. Um, mainly because the greeter at the door seems genuinely surprised that you came to visit. <laughs> um, uh, also, these uh, churches will tend to have people that are maimed. In fact, all of them do. Of the 40 churches, there have been over 100 fatalities, um, including... George Wendt Hensley himself, who died at age 75 in 1955 from a snake bite. Uh, before that, his own wife tragically died of a snake bite as well. Many of the people in these churches have fingers missing or limbs missing that had to be amputated after a bite. Um, and so it's just a, it's a really tragic situation. And another way maybe you could tell that you're in one of those churches is when they pass the plate for offering, they say you can pay by cash or check or a mouse if you want to donate that as well. I don't know. But anyway, if you find yourself in the snake handling churches of Appalachia, um, just, just leave. Um, go, to any, <laughs> go to any other church before they start passing the plates or the bucket with the snake in it. Now, you might ask yourself, why on earth would people believe this? Where does this come from, this idea that you could play with a snake and if it bites you, don't get medical treatment, and you won't die from it. Um, well, the answer is the text that we're looking at tonight. So turn in your Bibles to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10. This is the passage that they go to, to to show this. And we are people that believe God's Word, and so maybe this is something we need to do. Um, <clears throat> wait till the end of the sermon to decide. Just remember the context here. Jesus has sent out his 72 evangelists, two by two, and had given them invested them with power to do miracles in order to authenticate their message. He sent them ahead of himself uh, before he came to those villages. And one of the things that they were able to do, to their great surprise, was to cast demons out of people who were possessed by demons. So this is kind of where we find ourselves. There's a, there's a whole story of what happened between verse 16 and verse 17 in the white space that isn't described. We're just told they're sent off, and then we're told what happens when they come back. And then they sort of report what happened in between. So let's, uh, well, let's pick that up in um, verse 17. Just a small section this evening. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
It's a, it's a small section. It's very powerful coming from the, the lips of Jesus, recalibrating what should bring us joy. And so we're going to see two blessings that come with salvation, two things that should give you joy, two blessings that will hopefully help lift your mood, hopefully help you deal with difficult times, um, and even happy times when you're rejoicing to just kind of put even those things in perspective of what should bring you joy. And those two blessings are spiritual protection on earth in this life um, and spiritual protection in eternity. And these are two things that come with your salvation. And so let's look at the first one, the spiritual, kind of the lesser one, the spiritual protection on earth. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a celebratory moment. You can empathize with them. They go on this mission. They try their hand at miracles. It works. Uh, maybe there's a demon-possessed you know, person that comes at them, and they, they, they cast the demon out, and the demon actually listens to them and is subject to the authority. And I mean, just the exhilaration of that experience, and they come to Jesus, and they're reporting, you won't believe it. Even the demons are subject to us. I mean, we're just nobody. We understand when, when Jesus casts a demon out because he's God in human flesh, but I can, I can be in charge of a demon and, and cast him out of a person? Wow! And so there's this celebration, and Jesus is celebrating with them as well. He's, um, he's, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, just before we go on, um, I want to point out that they were surprised that they were able to do this. Even the demons, of all the miracles they did, healing people, which they'd been told, they were most surprised. The thing that they come back reporting on is the demons. And so there's kind of an implication there that casting demons out of people is not just an everyday thing that all Christians can do, which seems like a simple thing to say, but I have been in circles, uh, theological circles, and I have friends who are pastors in these theological circles where it is considered normative, a normal part of the Christian life to encounter demonic activity and respond to it by casting demons out. And they will point to passages like this. You see, the 72 could do it. Um, well, I want to, I'll deal with that in a moment, but I first want to just point out to you that this was an unusual thing. This was a particularly unusual miracle that even these evangelists were surprised by it. Um, and now he goes on to say in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So what does that mean, that he fell like lightning? Well, if you remember back to your English lessons in school, there's similes and there's metaphors. A metaphor is when two things are likened to each other without the word like or as. And then there's a simile, when something is likened to something else using the word like or as. So which is this? I saw Satan fall like lightning. So don't, don't overthink this. Um, what, how does lightning fall? You know, slow, gentle, quiet. No, suddenly. There's a sudden, there's a flash. There's usually there's a boom with it. There, and it's, it's dramatic and it's quick. And it's, it, it's like you're, you're, you're walking um, down the hall and it's a banana peel. And the next thing, boom, you're just on the ground. You don't even notice how it happened. So Jesus is kind of rejoicing with them saying, I could tell that you were bringing the kingdom of darkness to its knees and that Satan was rattled by this mission 
And that as you were casting out demons, it's as if Satan stood on a banana peel and hit the, hit the deck. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. So it's just part of that. It's not like a major theological um, message here. Jesus is saying Satan took an unexpected blow on the chin this week. Well done, guys. You know, you did well. But then he elaborates of why it is that he perceived that Satan was uh, affected by their mission. In verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now you can see where the snake handlers of Appalachia start putting two and two together and getting 400. <laughs> they're, they're like, wait a minute. He gave them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions? I mean, look, if you're going to try this, try it with a scorpion, because, I mean, that hurts like heck, but it doesn't kill you. A snake is going to kill you. So, but anyway, they try with snakes, and they end up dying. So now there's two reasons why I want to point out to you that this is not talking about snake handling and why we're not going to pass a bucket around in the service. Reason number one, this ability was only given to the 72. This was not something that he delegated to all Christians at all times. He gave it to the 72, and as far as we can tell, he gave it to them for this time period, for this mission. We know that he gave the apostles certain um, uh, authority as well. But this is not something that, that all Christians can do. They were also given the authority to heal. Secondly, let's see if you've paid attention to previous sermons. What are the th well, we've got some new people here. What are the three most important rules of hermeneutics, of the, the science and art of Bible interpretation? I'll give you a hint. The first one is context. What's the second one? Context. And, and guess what the third one is? Context. Okay, so you have to always, every verse in the Bible is found in a context. What is the context here? Well, this is firstly, it's a narrative. It's a story of what's happening. It's a, an account of what happened. It's not a prescription. It's a description of something that happened, not a prescription of how we should live. We'll look at some prescriptions about spiritual warfare in a moment, but I just want that to be the first context. Secondly, um, the second part of the context here is, remember I taught you, like, pretend this is a bridge, and you, don't, you can't see under the bridge, you can't see what direction the water is flowing in the river, but you can look on this side of the bridge, and the water's flowing this way, and then you look on this side of the bridge, and the water's flowing the same way, so you can guess that the water under you is flowing in the same direction, okay? And so the verse just above is talking about I saw Satan fall from light. You know, they're talking about casting out demons and Satan falling. And then he says this thing about this, the um, serpents. Uh, you know, you can trade on serpents and scorpions. And then look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. So before he's talking about casting out spirits, they're talking about casting out spirits. And after this verse, he's talking about spirits and that they're subject to you and the demons are subject to you. So what is the verse talking about when it says, I gave you authority to step on serpents and scorpions? There's a good chance it's talking about spirits, uh, demons. And that serpents and scorpions is a, a metaphor, because there's no like or as. It's a metaphor for spiritual creatures, demons. And so that's what's going on here. When he says, I gave, I've given you authority to tread on 
serpents and scorpions. So they're rejoicing. Yay, we had authority that the demons were subject to us. And he says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. And in between that, he says, I gave you that authority that these things will not hurt you. What things? Scorpions? No. Demons. Right. I've given you the authority, verse 19 says, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So why is he talking about, you know, reptiles and arachnids and next thing he's talking about Satan? That doesn't make any sense. All of this is talking about Satan. And when he says nothing shall hurt you, that doesn't include bee stings. That doesn't include splinters. How come Christians... Fingers get sore when they poke it with the needle. It says nothing will hurt you. Obviously, this is not just talking about nothing in the universe can ever hurt you. It's talking about the power of the enemy and the demons. I know some of you are thinking, man, he's really hitting this hard. We're with him. Why won't he move on? I just want to get it on record. Because there are many, many Christians out there who are confused by this verse. And they actually think that if you go on a missions trip, everything will go well with you. You're not going to get a flat tire. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to get bitten by a serpent. Why? Because of this verse. And it's just not promising that. I went on a missions trip to India. Yeah. Don't drink the water is the moral of that story. Don't drink the water. It hurts to drink the water for about four days afterwards. So Paul's ministry, by the way, uh, so another thing we need to realize is that this is not a promise that there will be no satanic hindrance of our ministry. Paul's ministry was hindered by 2 Corinthians 12. By who? A messenger from? Do you remember? Where he prays three times? A messenger from Satan. Yeah. An angelos of Satan. An angel of Satan. So he was harassed in some way by Satan. Um, Jesus warned Peter, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. That's to Peter. Satan's going to sift you like wheat, Jesus said. But Jesus also has the authority to limit what Satan can do. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents, and nothing shall hurt you. So he can limit what, what can happen and when it can happen. Just like in Job chapter 1, where God limits what Satan can do to Job. Right? You have to understand that God and Satan are not two equal powers that are pitted against each other. Because sometimes in these circles, people also talk about that, you know, God wants to do this, but Satan's doing that. And, and so God can't do what he wants because Satan's having his way. And so you need to pray that the angels bind Satan so that God, get him out of the way um, so that God can do what he wants to do. And it's a, kind of this picture that there's this chess game going on, you know, and God's the one grandmaster on the one side and then Satan's the other grandmaster and they're kind of moving the people. Listen, Satan's not a player. He's a pawn. God is the only one moving things around on the chessboard. And he moves Satan to do what he wants. And the reason Job went through what Job went through is because God allowed Satan to do that. And Satan couldn't do anything more than what God allowed him to do. If you go and read the book of Job. And so these people were given this immunity. And I do think that it's, it's a legitimate implication for us to to think that Jesus is able to and does limit what Satan can do to us as believers. So those were, that's a narrative passage. Let me give you just a few verses that are, some of these are prescriptive. So these are verses that teach us how to deal with spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 
verse 11. Ephesians 6, that whole chapter is worth reading. Um, it's all about the spiritual armor, and it's the one place in the Bible where we are told how to deal with demons, that, that, or that all Christians are. And it's be saved, believe the gospel, be ready to share the gospel, you know, um, put on the, you know, the breastplate of faith and the, all those types of things. And then in the end it says, in verse 11, you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against them. Don't bind him. Make sure you're saved and you believe and you have the word of God and the readiness of the gospel on your feet and all those things and you will be able to stand against him. That's Ephesians 6, 11. James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a prescription. James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. He can't hurt you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he in you than he who's in the world. And the context there is speaking about the Holy Spirit in us as a Christian versus the spirit of Satan that's out there in the world. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he in you than he's in the world. That's why we can't be possessed by it, Satan. 1 John 5, 18. He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So whoever's born of God, whoever's a Christian, well, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So I think from those verses, not from the narrative of the 72, I think from these verses, we can safely assume that we are safe from Satan hurting us because we are Christians we have the Holy Spirit in us that was 1 John 5 18 he's born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him so your ministry might be hindered by demons but you are in no danger of being hurt by them that should give you some sort of comfort so that is one of the blessings that comes with your salvation is protection spiritual protection on earth in this life but there's a second blessing our second point spiritual protection in eternity Verse 20, nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So here Jesus goes from the spiritual protection, I made sure that nothing can hurt you, but now he goes to this eternal spiritual protection, this spiritual protection into eternity, that rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the real blessing of your salvation is that your names are written in heaven that your salvation is secure so what he's saying is the fact that you could cast out demons is worth rejoicing about but primarily because it shows you that you're on my team the fact that you can cast out demons shows that you're on my team that's what you should be rejoicing about that you're saved that you your your, your names are written in heaven this was just a symptom. Yes, it was a blessing, and it's great to rejoice, and I saw Satan fall, but listen, don't rejoice about that. Rejoice about this other thing. You guys are rejoicing of the lesser of two blessings. So imagine you're, you're going out, you, you're looking for a, an outfit. Uh, ladies, you, it's your daughter's wedding, and you, you're the mother of the bride, and you have to wear you know, a, a dress. She's given you the colors that you're allowed to wear, and so you go shopping for the, the perfect dress or maybe it's prom or homecoming or whatever. And you spend the whole day looking for this dress, and you finally, in the mall, you get to the store, and you find the perfect dress that you're looking for. And it's the right color, and it fits you. It's in your size, and it's in your budget. And so you take it to the register, and you pay for it. 
But as you pay for it, all these lights start flashing and an alarm goes off and the manager comes out and says, congratulations, you are this mall's 10 millionth customer. And so we're going to give you $100,000. Yay! And they write you the check and they give it to you. And you're just, this is fantastic. You get your dress and you got your $100,000 and you get in the car and you're in a daze and you get home and your husband says, how was your day shopping? And she says, it was the best day ever. You won't believe what happened. I found the dress in my color and my size. I mean, that's, a, that's good news, right? But that's not the main thing. And that's what happens. These people come back and they're like, you won't believe what happened. We did things that prove that we're Christian and we did these things that prove it. And Jesus says, yeah, that you're a Christian. That's what you should be celebrating. Not the spiritual protection on earth. Sure, this was a great mission and I'm glad everything went well and that was great. But... The greater thing is that your name is written in heaven. You won. That's what you need to be rejoicing in. Now apply this to your life when you're rejoicing about whatever. I'm not saying we shouldn't rejoice. We should. Christians are celebratory people. We celebrate everything. But whenever we celebrate anything, we ought to put it in perspective that on top of that, we also have our names written in heaven. And what's great about that is that when there's something that's going wrong in your life, that doesn't change. So you always have that to cling to. So rejoice in that. Your names are written in heaven, verse 20 says. What does this written in heaven mean? We see it in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And verse 15 says, this is Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That, this is what it means to say your name is written in heaven. It's written in a book. I don't know how many volumes the book is. I don't know if the angels upgraded to iPads or if there's a software system. They have a way of keeping track of everything. Maybe there's a spreadsheet and you click on the guy's name and there's all, all the deeds he's ever done. But the main thing is, is your name written in the book of life. If your name's in the book of life, you're in. If your name's not in the book of life, you're out. And there's nothing you can do about it. Revelation 21, verse 27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter into the holy city. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's Revelation 21 verse 27. The only people that are allowed in the heavenly city are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here it's actually given a name. It's the Lamb's book of life, as in Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus has a book of life with your name in it if you're a Christian. Just let that sink in for a moment. 
I mean, some of you have had name changes. That's okay. Jesus knows your real name, whatever it is. In fact, there's other verses that tell us he, he'll reveal to you the name that he calls you when you're in heaven. Um, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you are a Christian. When you as a human being die and your spirit separates from your body, your body we do the memorial service or whatever down here, but your spirit is instantly at that place of judgment. And this will be the most crucial moment of your entire existence. You will stand there as that angel is looking through the Lamb's Book of Life for your name, and the only thing that will matter to you is, is my name in the book. Nothing else matters. There's no court case where you're going to have to come up with reasons why they should let you in. I know we tell the joke, like, what would you, if, if you died tonight, what would you tell St. Peter is the reason you should be let in the holy city? Well, that doesn't happen. There are no reasons. There's no appeal system. There's no, can I speak to your manager? There's your names in the book of life or it's not. It's as simple as that. This is the most important thing. You're not going to ask, well, what about the, the natives in the Amazon? I never got a clear answer on that. Why, why did God allow bad things to happen to good people? What about earthquakes? You know, people always have the, when you talk, when you evangelize with people, they always have these, what about this? What about that? Ha ha, you can't answer this. How do you explain this? Listen, none of that's going to mat matter on Judgment Day. And you can tell them that. If you're evangelizing somebody and they're like, well, what about this? Just say, listen, we'll get to that. Let's first get your name in the book of life. And everything else will pale in comparison. That is the only thing that matters. And you don't need to have your intellectual standards met by Jesus, you just need to submit. He's not on trial. You are. And those whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will disappear into eternity forever. A graceless, merciless eternity. And those whose names are will be ushered into the heavenly city with their Savior forever and ever. This is such a powerful reality if you can learn to apply it to your life. You know that Paul does this. Uh, we just came out of the Philippians series uh, several weeks ago. In Philippians 4 verse 2, remember, there's these ladies in the church and they're having a catfight of biblical proportions and he, he wants to commend them to get along in the Lord. Remember that? And he calls them out. Philippians 4 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So even Paul is saying, listen, I know that whatever these two ladies are on about, you know, they're at each other's throats about some issue. I'm sure it's very, very important. In the salons of Philippi, this little fight, who's taking sides? But let's put this in perspective. Why don't you guys get along in the Lord, get along with the mission, you and all the other people whose names are written in the book of life? That's what's important. Yudia and Syntyche, you guys are both going to be in heaven forever. So get over yourselves. 
Whatever this issue is, it's going to mean nothing once you're in heaven. So why don't we just remember that? And if you can apply this, friends, if you can apply this to your marriage, this is like the silver bullet that solves all arguments. You just remind yourself, I know I'm right, and I know she thinks she's right, but it really doesn't matter. And we're going to live forever in heaven together, and then it's really not going to matter. And we're just going to look pretty foolish for having a fight over what the name of the restaurant was that we met at, or whatever it is that we can't remember. This, helps, this perspective helps you transcend trivial quarrels with other believers and the pettiness that characterizes so many churches and so many marriages and friendships today. Stop caring about who was right and who was wrong. Rejoice that your names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if I ask you, do you rejoice in the Lamb's Book of Life, rejoice that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, like, well, now it's easy. You're in the middle of a sermon. But think to 15 minutes before the sermon, a couple of hours before the sermon tonight. Think through this last week, this last year. Maybe you've been going through a trial. Maybe there's some sort of uncertainty or some sort of fear of the future or some big life change. I would guess that there's at least some of you that would admit that your life has not been characterized by rejoicing that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So I want to help you with that tonight. I think that there's two reasons for that. One is, you've gotten used to it. You take it for granted. This is a very common problem with any kind of blessing that the Lord gives us. Um, somebody was asking me just this week, we were talking about you know, how hot it is here, and here in Mobile. And they asked me, you know, do you like being in Mobile? What was my answer? Of course I do. It's in America. <laughs> you know, it's like being anywhere in America is better than being anywhere that's not in America. It doesn't matter how hot it is in the little spot you're standing on in America right now. Just the freedom and the protection and the electricity um, that, that we have in this country makes it better. From, from, you know, just a purely worldly, physical point of view. Sometimes people forget that, and I, it, it always amuses me when I hear Americans complain about their country because all it means is that they've never traveled. Because <laughs> Americans who have traveled realize no matter what happens here, you're like, well, the president's so bad. What are you talking about? Have you been to, like, any other country with any other president? They're all bad. But at least you've got electricity. That's something. That's more than a lot of countries. At least we've got hospitals. At least we've got police that, in general, aren't just trying to take your money from you when you go to them with a the problem. I mean, we just get used to the stuff that God gives us, right? Your salvation is the most important thing that you have. It is the greatest blessing that you have, but it's very normal to just get used to that. 
Why is the Lord taking me through this trial? Does it matter? You're saved. Why didn't I get that job that I prayed for and the other guy got it? Does it matter? You're saved. It's just like anything that could possibly be going wrong, put it in perspective, but I'm saved. My, my name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. No matter what happens here, when you're in heaven, no matter what happens, well, we're in heaven. So don't let yourself get used to it. Here's three little tips on how to stimulate in yourself the reminder to rejoice in your salvation. And then I'll give you the other possibility. I said there were two. So for those of you who take for granted that you're saved, here's three helps. One, meditate on your sinfulness. That's something practical that you can do. Meditate on your sinfulness. In other words, your unworthiness to be in heaven. Romans 7 verse 19. Paul said, For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That passage will take care of it for you. You meditate on how I want to do the right thing, but I don't. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I do want to do, I end up not doing. Wretched man that I am, I'm so sinful. How am I ever going to get to heaven? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how I'm going to get to heaven. He did it all for me. I don't deserve it one little bit, but I get all of it because he deserved it and gave it to me as an exchange for my sin. So that's how you stimulate in you the reminder to be joyful about your salvation is when you remind yourself that you don't deserve it. Secondly, you can meditate on death. I know it sounds a little morbid, but Christians throughout the ages have found this a very helpful exercise. You can see art over the centuries will often have a little... um, skull somewhere like there'll be this still life of these beautiful sunflowers and in the corner there's a skull and you're like what have you seen that before it's called a who knows what it's called it's a good latin name you'll know as soon as i tell you students memento mori have you ever heard of that a memento mori means a reminder of death and christian artists throughout the centuries have put little reminders of death in their art and I know people that have little skulls like on, you know, pastors who have a skull on their desk. I just can't bring myself to do that yet because of counselees, you know. But maybe I should turn the skull around and be like, whatever's going on in your marriage, at least you're not dead yet. Or whatever. But, but meditate on death. So 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. Remind yourself of that. Your sin will drag you to hell. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So one, meditate on your sinfulness and how you don't deserve heaven. And then remind yourself Jesus gets you there. Then remember death. Death is something that people fear. They worry about. They try to avoid it. And the more you realize, yikes, death is scary. The next thing you remember is, but I don't have to be scared. 
And that's something that not a lot of people on planet Earth have. Is the assurance that their death has no sting. Yes, the dying itself is kind of unpleasant, usually. But it's so short. Oh, it's so short. Compared to what you get immediately afterwards. There's no sting. It's just the upgrade. So, meditate on your sinfulness, meditate on death, and then meditate on heaven. Set your mind on heavenly things. That's the third thing you can do. If you want to remind yourself to rejoice in your salvation, remember that you're going there. It's like, remind yourself to be happy that you have a ticket to Disneyland. Well, I don't know how many people would be happy to go there now, but wherever it is that you want to go, Israel, (laughs) think of the place that you're going to and how cool it is, right? So Colossians 3 verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you see what these all have in common. My sinfulness is so bad, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, I'm delivered from that. Oh, I need to remember death, but it's thanks be to God, I'm going to be resurrected. Oh, I need to think about heaven, I'm not there yet, but thanks be to God, I'm going to get to go there. All of this is all because of Jesus. So the more you think about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you, the more it's going to remind you, and I get this amazing perk that I get to be with him forever and ever. That's why I never have any kind of hesitation when I'm speaking to a Jehovah's Witness, for example, or even a Mormon. Because when they're trying to convert Christians, you just have to ask them, does your system that you're offering me allow me to be with Jesus every day forever? And the answer is no. In Mormonism, you get your own planet, and you get to be the god of your own planet. So what? (laughs) No thank you. (laughs) How lonely, how weird. Where's Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is on my planet and all the other Mormons don't have one, that's still good. But that's not what they're offering you. And Jehovah's Witnesses, well, no, the 144,000, they get to go to heaven, but you're not one of them. Well, then you got nothing for me. I just want where Jesus is. I don't care where that is. But I said that there were two two reasons you might not be rejoicing in your, the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. One is because you get used to it, and then so you can meditate on these things, and that'll help you. But the other one is maybe you don't rejoice that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life because you're not sure if it is. And that's a very common thing, even among believers. That if, at least in stages in your life, you might go through a season where you're not like 100% sure it's in. So it's hard to rejoice about something if you're not 100% sure that you're in. I have a friend whose daughter is applying to go to the Master's College, and she's totally going to get in. (laughs) She's like one of these kids. She's like the top of her class. She's a believer. Her dad's a pastor. Like, the Master's College is a Christian college that's looking... Her dad's a graduate from the college. I mean, she's going to get in. But she's... Not rejoicing yet because she hasn't got the letter of acceptance yet. What if something goes wrong? So we all know she's going to get in. And if she doesn't, I mean, I know people that are on the board. We can pull strings. Like, she's definitely going there. (laughs) But she can't rejoice fully because she's not 100% sure until she gets that letter, right? And I understand that. So maybe that's the case you're in. Like, we might be like, that person's totally saved. But deep down, you're thinking... 
don't know. I mean, there's the sin in my life that people don't know about. Or I'm just not as committed as the other Christians I know. Or, I mean, I do what I'm supposed to do, but I, deep down, I don't really want to. Like, I would rather be, whatever, shopping, fishing, sleeping, whatever, than going to church. So you may have things in you that make you doubt. So I, I'm, let me help you with that, too. And that's kind of its own sermon that we're going to have to do. This is like a big deal. A lot of people come for counsel, and there's, it's not something I can just throw out. But I'm going to try. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. This is the passage I go to if somebody comes to me with that, like, I'm not sure if I'm saved. 2 Peter, this isn't somebody who's like, I don't believe in Jesus, share the gospel with me, like, I want to be saved. That's a different story. This is someone who's like, I'm in the church, I've been baptized, I think I'm a believer, I'm not 100% sure. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, verses 5 to 9, you will never fail. So we're not going to, we're kind of running out of time. We're not going to read that whole thing. But if that is you, that's the passage I would want you to go and read. It lists Christian virtues, brotherly kindness, you know, love. Um, and he says, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, to, to know for sure that you've got that name in the Lamb's Book of Life. For if you practice these Christian qualities, you will never fall. And he goes on to say, if they are yours and increasing. And that's the key. The key is that Christians grow. That's how you know you're a Christian. It's not where you are on the line between unbeliever and Christ, perfect Christ-likeness. It's that you're moving on the line. So if, if Christ-likeness is the bullseye on a dartboard, unbelievers are off the dartboard, believers are on the dartboard, but every time you kind of throw, are you getting closer to the bullseye or are you sometimes off the dartboard? And that's a bad analogy. That's what happens when you make stuff up while you're talking. Um, I, like the, I like the timeline one rather. Like on the line, on the progression... Are you standing still on the progression? Are you sliding back on the progression? Or are you heading towards Christ-likeness? And it can, any fruit, any growth in your life is due to the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't fake that yourself. You can fake what it looks like to us. So we, we're not a good judge because we'll be like, oh, of course you're saved. Or some of you, I'm like, finally, you came for an appointment. I've been meaning to call you. Um, but the idea here is, if these are your quali- if you have these Christian qualities and they're increasing and there's growth in your life, that's going to give you some assurance. Now, you might be saying, but what if I really want to be saved? And I want my names in the Lamb's Book of Life, but what if, what if I'm not elect? Or what if Jesus doesn't want me? Or what if I want to be saved, but I, I can't be because I'm not one of those chosen ones. Well, I don't have enough faith. So this is a very important thing you have to understand. If you want to be saved from your sin, 
then you're already having him work in you because nobody wants to be saved from their sin unless he is. So to put that another way, anybody who wants to be saved will be saved. It's the people who don't want to be saved that can't be saved. Because they're not going to trust in Jesus, they're not going to turn from their sin, they're, they're, they don't want that. So the mere fact that you want to be saved is a sign that the Holy Spirit is already working in you. So don't worry about, you know how you know you're elect? You want to be elect. That's how you know. If you want to be one of Jesus's, you can be. The Bible's full of these promises. If you knock, I will answer. Whoever comes will by no means be cast out. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, it's just like anytime Jesus speaks, he says, I'll take you. Knock and I'll answer. Just come to me. Your burden's heavy? Come, I'll take it. I'll, my burden's light. Anybody. For God so loved the whole world. But whoever believes, anybody who wants to believe, well, what about the theology? Don't worry about theology. Just worry, worry about the promise. You'll understand the theology later. Now you just have to take him at his word. Trust and obey. You want Jesus? Call out to Jesus. He'll save you. Simple as that. And then you can be sure. Because you don't have to be sure of yourself and your performance and how genuine was that faith and did I really mean... Don't, don't ever think about yourself to know if you're going to be saved. You will fall into doubt if you think about yourself. Because you don't play any part in your salvation except by bringing the stuff that keeps you going to hell. The only part you play in your salvation is to bring the sin that Jesus has to forgive. So anytime you think about you and the part you're playing, you're going to feel depressed. What you need to do is you just need to think about Jesus and the part that he's playing, which is all of it. And he lived a perfect, perfect life. The only way I would doubt my salvation is if I doubted if Jesus could do it. You know, that Jesus guy, he seems kind of shady in places, doesn't he? No! No, he doesn't seem shady. That Jesus, he was a slick salesman. I don't know if we can trust him. Yeah, then I would doubt my salvation. So just read the Bible and learn about Jesus. And you're like, yeah, this guy, he got it done. He went to the cross. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. He did everything that the Father wanted all the time and makes that righteousness available to whoever believes. So as long as Jesus satisfied the Father, I'm in. And that's why the resurrection is so important, because when Jesus died, God raised him from the dead. So for those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice in your salvation. Praise God for what Jesus did on the cross. Nothing else in life compares to that joy. And also, another application point, don't play with snakes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder. It really is a joy to be reminded of our salvation. A salvation we didn't earn. A salvation we could never merit. And yet one that we can cling to because of what you did for us in the cross, Lord Jesus. I pray especially for anyone here tonight, Lord, that is a child of yours and yet is not sure of their salvation. That your spirit would grant them assurance that they would they would examine themselves to be sure that they're in the faith and that you would show them the, the fruit that you've granted them over the years. If there's anyone here who is not sure and they're not 
yet a believer. I pray that your spirit would convict them of their sin, that your spirit would draw them to salvation, that they would turn away from their sin and repent of it and embrace the Savior who will have them. And so we thank you for this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Okay, we have just a few minutes for Q&A so that we can release the ladies who look after the babies in the nursery. Any questions? Thomas. I mean, just that Jesus says, uh, to repeat the question, like, where, where in the context there do we get the idea that Jesus saw Satan f- fall? Just that he uses that word, like he says, I, I saw him fall like lightning. So he's describing what he saw in a way that we can visualize. So we can visualize a bright flash of something falling hard and quick. That's how he's describing what he knows to have happened. When we say see, I mean, I don't know, did he see it with his eyes? Did he see it with his spiritual intuition? I, I don't, he doesn't say, I don't think that's the point. I think the point there is just, they come back with this report, we had dominance over the forces of darkness, and he's saying, yes, I know. I already knew that, and, and, and you're right. Does that answer the question? Right, right, right. I mean, certainly when Satan was cast out of heaven, obviously Jesus would have seen that too, but that, I don't think that's what he's referring to over here. I mean, because the, the language could have said that, it could be like, yes, this reminds me of the time if he had said, um, as the time when I had seen him fall from heaven, or like in the past tense, but that's not what he says. There's, he could have used a perfect tense, he could have used an imperfect tense, he could have used an aorist tense, but um, he's like, I think you did use Aris tense. Aris tense is one that doesn't have a past tense in it. Um, I saw Satan fall. Like, not, I, I had seen that happen in the past. Good. Any other questions? Anything about Samson or Ruth? Do you want to know what we're hearing on Sunday morning? First Peter. We're starting First Peter this Sunday. Yes, Brandon. Yeah, yeah. So the question um, in the Ruth series, you know, where Ruth tells Orpah, go back to your people and to your gods. She actually says that to her and to Ruth. But Ruth says, no, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And Orpah's like, okay. And she goes back. And we're sort of like, oh, come on, Naomi. Why didn't you try to, you know, evangelize Orpah? Um, Why even say that? Go back to your gods. And I mean, the text doesn't say. I think what's happening there is that's the moment that Ruth is 
making that decision for the first time. So you've got to remember that Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion were probably not the best examples of faithful followers of Yahweh because they left. I mean, certainly Elimelech takes his family out of Israel, which they were not allowed to do. They're marrying Moabites, which they're not allowed to do. So we just have to assume, like the rest of Israel during the days of Judges, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So they're not like good witnesses of faithful followers of Yahweh, like the people back in Bethlehem are. So uh, Orpah's probably never even seen a real follower of Yahweh, except Naomi, at, at best. Um, and so I just think, I think Naomi's just saying, look, I can't take care of you, and I want what's best for you. Just like maybe we would do if we had a family member that um, was an unbeliever, and we've maybe shared the gospel with him or her, and they've rejected it, um, and now they're making a life decision that's going to be good for them or bad for them, you might still give them advice. Hey, do the life decision that's good for you. Even, that's not a spiritual thing. It's just like, let's say this person wants to join the Navy and it's going to take them out of the country. Or they're going to stay in town but um, start working at the strip club. You're like, okay, between those two choices, I would say join the Navy, see the world. Well, that's going to take them away from you and then somebody might one day say, well, why don't you try to keep them with you and evangelize them? It's like, that's not really the choice. Like, the choice was this or that. Um, and that's sort of with Orpah. The choice isn't come with me and be a believer. In, in Naomi's mind, there is only one choice. You know, come with me and die or stay here and go back to your people and have a chance at a happy life. Um, that's why she gives that little speech of like, what, I'm going to find somebody tonight and have a baby and give birth and they're going to grow up and then marry you? Like, she's like, that's not an option. If you come with me, we're going to die. And Ruth says, I don't care. Let's do it anyway. 